Most MPs I know are there to, to find a way to build a better country and they're problem solvers. So they're trying to make decisions on behalf of their constituents. So if you're silent, don't blame them. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me on the show this week, we have the CEO and president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, Bruce Clemenger. Thanks for joining me. Oh, pleasure to be with you, David. Now, Bruce, you uh, work for an organization that unites Christian denominations across this country, uh, but your particular upbringing is from the Christian Missionary Alliance, and we know that A.W. Tozer, well-known author and late pastor, subscribed to this denomination as well, and you have a souvenir of A.W.'s that we've got to hear the backstory on how you got this. When I was a child, my family attended the Avon Road Church in Toronto, where Tozer was a pastor-preacher for several years. And uh, after he died, his widow was planning to return to Chicago. And so she wanted to give away some of his items, personal items. And uh, I ended up with the typewriter. So this would have been the typewriter he wrote uh, Knowledge of the Holy on. So that's kind of a special thing in, in my history. Yeah, incredible author. Well, uh, speaking of authors, Bruce, you just uh, came out with the New Orthodoxy, Canada's Emerging Civil Religion, and you give us a sketch of really the history of Canada in relation to the church, religion itself, and you bring us to where we are today in 2023. Take us back just to uh, Confederation, and in particular, could you just help our listeners understand some of the differences between how Canada started in relation to the church versus the USA? I'll put it this way. Historically, Canada was dominated by Christianity. Before Confederation, on through Confederation, and on until probably around the 1960s, uh, the church played a a critical role. We never had an established church, no official state church, as they had in many countries in Europe and in the United Kingdom. But the church, some historians have called it the unofficial establishment, the church played the role of, uh, it had a prophetic role uh, to society. It, uh, it also played the, the role of priests. So whether you're in Quebec, which is dominantly Catholic, or the rest of Canada is dominantly, predominantly uh, Protestant, often at any official ceremony, there was someone wearing a collar representing kind of the church that would officiate. And then also, obviously, that pastoral role, um, you know, caring for people, helping people through crises, through difficult times. So again, so while there's no state church, in a sense, the collective, the major denominations at, at that time uh, really function like the conscience of the nation. So it's kind of unofficial establishment of Christianity. So many refer to this as Christendom, but Christianity was prevailing kind of background, shaping the culture in which then, you know, the state and politics uh, engaged in, in their jurisdiction. So in uh, the BNA Act, the British North America Act, 19, 1867, there was no reference to God. There was no reference to inalienable rights the way you have in the U.S. Constitution. It was really basically a dry, boring British document describing you know, that uh, at that point, four provinces wanted to get together and this will be federal, this will be provincial. The word God was not included in the Constitution until 1982 with the uh, amendment bringing into the Charter. Um, but, you know, so during this time, up until about 1960s, there was that prevailing influence of uh, Christianity. Now, this doesn't mean that justice always prevailed. And uh, the most uh, significant example of that would be the residential schools. But uh, Christianity was kind of the common reference point. 
And that shifted in the, in the 1960s in Quebec. You had what they called the Quiet Revolution, kind of the disestablishment of the church unofficially from, uh, they were very influential in healthcare and education system and so on. The rest of Canada probably took a few more decades than that. But you had this kind of rapid period of secularization as Canada became more religious diverse. And at the same time, in terms of politics and government and so on, the question is, where do we look for the, for the norms, for the principles which will guide our common life together? And so that's where Canada became a little more secular uh, with the introduction of the Charter in 1982. One of the first things happened was the Lord's Day Act was uh, struck down. So that was the, the act which, which basically barred major retail outlets from opening on Sundays. And the court didn't oppose the closing of a, a common pause day. Uh, but what they did oppose is the the grounding of a law in something that had a religious presence, the Lord's Day Act. So they objected more to the title than they did to the actual effect. If you want to have a common pause day uh, for families to enjoy life together and most people aren't working, that's a secular purpose. But to have a religious purpose underlying a law, they reacted to that. And so we really shifted into an area of, and it was somewhat before within the Catholic Protestant, what they called a non-sectarian approach to government. So the government would not root any of its decisions in any one sectarian, any one specifically religious view, but they would be non-sectarian. They try to treat all religious beliefs, all religious systems, including secularist ones. They would include that in the term religious as fairly as possible. So secular in sense of no one church would dominate and that, again, the justification for law wouldn't be rooted in any one specific worldview. So we entered kind of the side of what they often call open pluralism or a time of non-sectarianism. And would you say at this time that uh, Canadians were less represented by members of the population going to church, too, that it was, in fact, becoming? Oh, yeah, there's a rapid decline. So the, you know, from the 1940s, uh, where you had 67% of Canadians attending church regularly, and now we're down to about 8% attending religious services on a weekly basis. So it's almost a straight line decline. And so the church had less influence, and it no longer, in a sense, was the conscious of this nation. The priestly function wasn't in demand anymore. Prophetic function often sounded like uh, someone trying to inter- insert themselves, a certain morality into the conversation. And uh, there's still a strong reliance on the pastoral function. Even though the, the the government took over many of the functions that religion provided, so a lot of our hospitals up until the '60s were religiously based, you know, Salvation Army or Catholic or uh, Jewish. Even the education systems uh, up until a number of years ago, you in Newfoundland you had a denominational education system, or you had uh, the pro- the public system in Ontario was divined by Egbert Ryerson, um, and uh, it was Protestant enough that the Catholics wanted to have. A Catholic system, and that was kind of guaranteed in the in the BNA Act in 1867 to make sure that there's Catholic minority education because the, the public system was more decidedly Protestant in its ethos. And so you had this kind of waning of the influence of Christianity. And really, in my book, what I explore is what then fills the void. If you have the the predominance of Christianity or Christian influence in the background, uh, shaping politics, shaping different areas of life, and as that wanes. Uh, do we end up with a more of an open, non-sectarian approach to life? Or does something else seek to fill the void? Do we then become more sectarian as an, another sect or another ideology or 
worldview begin filling that void. And I think that's the kind of the fork in the road we're at now. Bruce, if it's no longer the church, who do you think the conscience of the consensus is right now? It's interesting because in, in some decisions, in some situations, the, the governments and the courts will still continue to be try to be non-sectarian, um, try to find um, uh, positions or decisions that honor and respect uh, diversity within uh, Canadian culture. And other times, they, their specific principles or attitudes or values that they seem to be shaping their decisions. Often, recently, it's more often referred to as charter values. So, I mean, they are given a task of interpreting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the predominant document within our Constitution, which seeks to actually to limit the extent of government intrusion into the life of its citizens. And so there we have a series of freedoms outlined in Section 2, freedom of conscience, religion, thought, belief, opinion, assembly, those kind of things. But increasingly, the, the court is, they, they need to give those words content, right? The charter doesn't self-interpret. So when it talks about fundamental principles of justice in Section 7, or life, liberty, and security of the person, so they need some type of a framework, interpretive framework to apply. And increasingly, they refer to words like uh, charter values or uh, charter principles to do that. And so one example is the principle of a human or individual autonomy. So the idea is that we are each autonomous, we're sovereign as persons, and we need to, uh, part of the role of the, of the state is to maximize the choices we have as we engage in life and that anything which seems to constrict our choices, tradition, any type of framework which binds our ability to choose is something that needs to be eradicated or uh, pressed aside. So there you have to have the privatization of religion. And then in the public realm, this champion of uh, something like uh, individual autonomy. And so this is in a sense what drives the whole debate over uh, assisted suicide, haste and death, or what uh, is called made medical assistance in dying. Back in 93, even, a Supreme Court ruled five to four that the prohibition against the suicide was... Uh, was necessary and important to promoting the sanctity of human life in Canada. Any exceptions to the rule of prohibiting assisted suicide would denigrate or undermine uh, sanctity of human life. Whereas now in 2015, the Supreme Court reversed itself, nine nothing. And there they found that in some cases, individual autonomy should trump societal respect for sanctity of human life, and that we should create exceptions to the law banning assisted suicide and allow assisted suicide in certain situations. But again, as one of the interveners in the Supreme Court case back in 2015 argued, and he was in favor of assisted suicide, he said, if you establish human autonomy as the principle by which you're going to expand assisted suicide, he could think of no way to put a barrier or break on the expansion of assisted suicide. So whatever you come up with to try to limit assisted suicide whatever argument you put forward will be able to be challenged through the idea of, of human autonomy. So we end up in a situation where there's the pursuit of maximum choice and having the individual being the, the, the sovereign uh, who decides um, who and wh what they will do without any other barriers or hindrances. Are you articulating this new worldview right now? The, the individual is the sovereign? Yep. That's, that's I mean, it, within liberal, we're living in a liberal democracy. Okay. And uh, the democracy side is that, you know, um, uh, everyone has, uh, uh, you know, one vote. We're all equal as citizens. In a sense, the majority wins out. In Canada, it's more like the, the plural, whoever has a plurality of votes wins out. We 
because uh, uh, very rarely does the party get over 50%, but that's the idea. The liberal side comes from a long history where we're seeking to protect uh, individual freedoms, individual rights. And their liberalism means we want to limit the power of the majority or the power of the government to infringe on individual freedom. Now, liberalism, the focus is on the individuals, not groups. And um, it's, it's presumption, as one person said, it's that it's our individual freedom is the essence of who we are. And so it wants to maximize the individual freedom we have, um, the limit being if that exercise of freedom inhibits the exercise of freedom of someone else. So the idea of individual freedom has always been core liberalism, liberty, is the focus on individual freedom. And so you have this tension between democracy and liberalism, you know, the will of majority over against protecting minorities, protecting the individual over the overreach of the will of majority or the state. And so the idea of autonomy or individual freedom has always been there. There's kind of a, a new sense of what autonomy means to the point where it's, it's uh, that idea of individual sovereignty. And what that does is that kind of diminishes traditions, families, in the whole gender identity debate, the same thing as biology. Biology shouldn't constrict you and what your identity should be. Laws should not inhibit you from expressing your identity. So the focus is on choice um, and maximizing choice and anything that inhibits or prohibits one from choosing whatever one wants to do to construct your own self-identity and express yourself any, any way you want, in a sense, becomes heresy, right? It's, it's challenging the, the, the orthodoxy of uh, individual autonomy. And I think that's where we can see it in a number of uh, laws and conversations within the public realm. So again, are we going to stick with a more of a plural environment where we see the charter and we see the principles that guide our society together as being kind of uh, consensus points of principles that we can all agree on human dignity. Pretty well every faith community and humanists and secularists can agree with the idea of human dignity, that everyone should be, or all people's dignity should be affirmed. But uh, we all come to that notion of human dignity from different spheres, different ideologies, different religions. But we can agree on principles of conscience, mutual respect, uh, human dignity. And so there it's, it's kind of more of a, a convergence of our various worldviews coming to agreement on a certain set of principles. So in my book, I talk a couple of Canadian philosophers and they think what's core to our society are two basic principles. One is mutual respect, that we mutually respect one another, uh, mutual respect and uh, a freedom of conscience. So we are everyone shaped by conscience and want to live their life out. Uh, they're, they're following their idea of human flourishing. And we want to respect that as best we can, as long as it's not harmful to the rest of society. And we want to respect each other in, in their pursuit of what they think is a good life and in their pursuit of human flourishing. And their concern is that when you start adding other principles to those two, and they talk about, uh, for example, human emancipation. So if it becomes a government's duty to make sure that everyone is emancipated, that everyone learns to be good, uh, you know, autonomous individuals, sovereign individuals, then that worldview begins clashing with uh, various other expressions like uh, Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism, uh, Evangelicalism, Islam. What that does is if, if then we're supposed to publicly affirm a series of contemporary values, forces the privatization of your faith. So personally, I can believe whatever I want, but publicly I have to affirm the common, the public values or what I call the political creed. And that's where we are right now, you think? Part of what I'm challenging is that there is a perception out there that uh, liberalism in pursuit of individual freedom, who could be opposed to that? And so it's kind of a universal given. 
my argument is that even though you can distinguish between state and church, each having its own sphere of responsibility, uh, there is overlap. So, you know, governments will be concerned about employment contracts or governments will be concerned about uh, fire codes in churches and those kind of things. Just as churches will be concerned when when governments get involved in issues as they should of justice and mercy. I think churches have something to say to, and other faith groups have things to say to the state about that. But you can sit, there's two separate spheres of engagement, right? We are citizens and we're also members of a church, right? And so we have that, uh, that's not divided loyalty. That's just part of, part of life. Just as we're a member of the family, we work for somebody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you have those different spheres, but you can't separate faith and politics. Because politics is a dimension of life. There's politics within a radio station. There's politics within an organization. There's, you know, politics within family, you know, vying for authority and those kind of things. Faith is a dimension of politics. And so every politician is shaped or influenced by some faith position. The uh, state will have something what I call a political creed. There'll be a set of values or principles and procedures that they hold dear that will shape and operate uh, the way the state does its work. And so in Canada, that's very much informed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But if the if that political creed is started to apply beyond the political sphere and starts impinging on family life, on you know church life, on life of different faith groups, on business and so on. And so that's where you have strange situations where even though the charter is supposed to limit the reach of governments in terms of what individuals do, Often uh, the charter, uh, you know, is used as a values test. We had the situation of the Canada Summer Jobs Grants. So not-for-profit charities could apply for funding from the government to, to help fund a student for summer to do whatever the organization needed. And usually it, as long as the, the job was a legitimate, you know, cutting grass or painting fences or helping with distribution programs, whatever it was, that was sufficient to qualify for the grant. A few years ago, the government um, included into that a respect for the charter, respect for charter values, and uh, respect for um, reproductive rights. And so they were actually requiring this attestation to groups that were not the state. So the, so even though the government's required to follow non-discriminatory practices, for example, in its hiring, organizations aren't necessarily. So a, you know, a Baptist church can hire a Baptist pastor and not hire an Anglican or not hire an Iman, right? I mean, we make those distinctions. And so it's when the, when the state starts imposing on organizations things that should only be imposed on it in the charter, then you have an overreach of that political creed. And that's what uh, concerns me. So the option is this open pluralism where the government respects the various worldviews and religions that are playing society and allows people to express themselves publicly and within that environment come together in uh, you know, collaboration for public purposes, or will it, it become more sectarian and and s- establish a certain set of values and principles that it thinks should govern the public square, and by that then push people to privatize their faith and and cause dilemmas. I live publicly one way and privately another, and that's my concern. Well, with the limited time we have left, I just wonder what your exhortation would be to Christians as they navigate this. I mean, you've kind of outlined the different roads that our government, our country can take. Uh, And in your book, you cover sort of five classic approaches that Christians have taken throughout Canada's history. If you could really concisely like sort of launch us on to where you think we should be 
following as the as the spirit leads here as believers we are members of the kingdom of god and we are citizens uh first peter talks about being one race one people one you know a priesthood and uh i mean that's our primary uh affiliation uh we are also citizens of canada and uh, this is a country where in which uh, god has placed us and we have tremendous uh opportunities and ability to engage in in the political as well as other spheres of life and i think we need to take that uh, that opportunity seriously engage well you know take seriously the idea that there is a faith dimension to politics uh engage with a local politician have conversations with them particularly election time it's a great time to talk and find out what what animates them what set of beliefs uh why are they feel uh they want to engage in political life and then understand the issues of the day and understand what's behind, what drives these issues. So the EFC that I work for, many other organizations, their websites are replete with analyses of bills and uh, what's going place. And so just it, part of it's education. And that's what um, my book has. A, there's kind of a discussion page. You know, you talk through some of the issues. Others have provided other scenarios and stories. Most MPs I know are there to, to find a way to uh, build a better country. And they're problem solvers. So they're trying to make decisions on behalf of their constituents. So if you're silent, they, you know, don't blame them. But engage with them with respect. Engage with them as people who are devoting their life to a very kind of challenging task. Tell them you're praying for them. And engage with them on the issues. And then if they're thinking of voting for something, explain to them why you think you're, you're either for or against. And you can use biblical principles. Uh, often what we do is we identify those principles out of Scripture. Uh, but then you, it's not that the Bible will sell them on the argument because they'll have other constitutions with other principles that are being advanced. But we can be upfront about the basis of our faith and where we draw those principles that shape and guide our life. You know, they are there to represent their constituency, which means they need to know what their constituency believes and thinks about the province or the, the federal government and what actions the government needs to be taking, what actions they should not take. And uh, so if they're filling their role well, they will be hearing from a number of different citizens, probably from on a number of different points of view on the same piece of legislation. So uh, we come at it from Christian point of view, from a, using biblical principles to explain and why they think legislation is ill-advised or whether it's a, a good, good way to go. Remember, what we're pursuing is justice and not just uh, justice for us. And we want to um, uh, contribute to the building of a, of a collaborative, a cooperative society. And again, in that, often we're accused of imposing morality. In a sense, we don't impose morality. It's the government does. I mean, they're, they're the, they own the criminal code. And a criminal decides you know, what is legal, what's illegal, and they decide, ascribe certain penalties. So they're the ones that are, in a sense, legislating morality. What we're seeking to do is, as a matter of witness, engage in a conversation about what that morality would be and how it would be better for society to adhere to laws and customs and policies that uh, reflect biblical principles. Okay, awesome. Well, that's a, a great exhortation and I love the posture of gratitude and the posture of seeking to help the welfare of the land that you're approaching this from. In conversation with the president and CEO of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, Bruce Cleminger. And of course, you can read up on his book, get a copy for yourself, The New Orthodoxy, Canada's Emerging Religion 
And if you want to find out more information on the work the EFC does, head to evangelicalfellowship.ca. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. And if you want to find out any more on Bruce Cleminger and the good work of the EFC, head to evangelicalfellowship.ca. Also, I've highlighted some of the key events and dates that we mentioned in the show. You can double back on those at the show notes at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. Months after Queen Elizabeth's death and the calls for Canada's separation from the crown continue. But there's a good argument why we should carry on as we always have. John Fraser is a renowned Canadian writer who wrote a book on the Queen's death and believes King Charles may have been placed for such a time as this. Charles is the first to have really sounded the alarms about climate change. He was the first big figure to announce the importance of indigenous voices in our thinking and the first to sound the alarm against mindless bits of architecture. Many of the things he warned about and that he was dismissed as a bit of a loon have all become commonly accepted now. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.